Hey, season two, episode four, I think. We got Neil Greenbaum here. Good friend, incredible individual. We've connected, we've had a great time. Of course, we met on LinkedIn. And uh, without further ado, Neil, how you doing, man? Good, how are you? How you doing? Wonderful. Well, listen, you're known as a lot of things in the world, and one of them is the guy with the cool t-shirts. So go ahead. I know this one's in a different language. What does it say? Well, this one you could probably read. That's why I have it. And I don't have that many t-shirts where I am right now. This says Panthers. Is this this is Panthers? From it's the Florida Panthers. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in Florida right now. So this is- That's uh, awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Fantastic. Well, that's a cool shirt, man. How's everything going for you? Good. Thankfully good. You? Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I can't complain. Things are really good. It's uh, sunny. It's it's uh, it's bright. It's just uh, really great. Can't complain here. So let's jump right in. Uh, before we get started on some of the questions that I have in mind to ask you, I want to just start with something that I ask a lot of my guests. Define yourself for us. So who is Neil Greenbaum? I couldn't give you that question in advance. Okay, anyway, um, who is Neil Greenbaum? <laughs> Uh, it's a philosophical question. Um, so I am, uh, I'm a straight shooter. You know, what you see is what you get. It's funny when I, I do all these videos on LinkedIn and then I speak to people and they're like, you know, you're just like you are in your videos. I'm like, yeah, cause I'm not acting. That's who I am. And I'm like that all the time with it, you know, personally or professionally. Uh, I'm, I'm usually the same person. That's awesome. Straight. Okay. So authenticity, what you see is what you get. You know, I, I like to think of you as, as a no BS guy. I've gotten to know you here over the last couple of weeks, and uh, it's been a real pleasure. You know, I know one of the things that has been really valuable is seeing your posts, which, in my opinion, it's almost, I know it's not legal advice, but the things that you're posting about are very valuable, and I want to kind of tease those out so that my viewers can can learn a little bit, not only about you, but about what you do and, and the value you can provide them. So recently, we started talking a little bit about single-purpose entities LLCs and you know how they can be used in real estate. I want to just open up the floor to you to share a little bit of information with our viewers about the necessity for forming LLCs and for doing them properly. Okay, well, I mean, goes without saying. I mean, it's like this gift we we can use an LLC or corporation to limit our personal liability, basically to separate our personal assets from our business assets. So nobody should ever buy a piece of property in their name. Though it's funny when you do some deals, you find people still own property in their personal names and. And their thinking was at the time, because they might own it for 20, 30, 40 years, was that, well, I'm insured, so it doesn't matter. And they're true. it's true. If you have good insurance and insurance covers, because insurance doesn't have to cover, then it's, then it's true. But however, we have LLCs and, and corporations. The LLCs are a little easier. They're more of a fluid, less formal entity. And I like to use them, and they're very common in real estate. So with regard to a single purpose entity, when you buy a piece of property, you don't want to own 10 pieces of property under one entity, because what happens is you're going to have cross liability issues. That means is that if one property has an issue, let's say incurs liability due to a lawsuit or due to a contractual violation or breach, all 10 properties are at risk because it's only one owner. So a single purpose entity, what that is, is that each property has is owned by a single entity and all that entity does is own the property. The entity doesn't manage the property. The entity doesn't do a lot of other things. It only owns a property. It's entitled to the property. And when you do that, you will, you'll form a, sec, a secondary entity in order to collect rent and manage the property and things like that. So that way, the liability will not be there for the entity. The entity will just own the property. And a lot of lenders really want the property to be taken in title by a single purpose entity. Yeah, those are all really great points. And I think that it's important to recognize that you have an insurance side of things to protect you. You also have a single purpose entity side of things to protect you. And my, my, my view on this is if, you know, there's an opportunity for protection, 
Why would one leave themselves open to exposure? I know to your point, I've even in the past, you know, because I flipped a lot of houses and we always buy homes in individual LLCs. Um, in fact, we, we even buy our vehicles in, in, in individual LLCs. And at a certain point, I was faced with that dilemma of how do I insure the vehicle and who takes title for the vehicle? And I know a vehicle is not a home or an investment property, but I decided commercial insurance, you know, business insurance and a separate LLC for the box truck. And lo and behold, there was an accident and I was sued. And thank God I did it the way I did it because it provided me with a lot of protection. Right. With a commercial vehicle, I understand that 100%. Because, yeah. I mean, even though the liability, the odds of being in, in a horrific accident, thank God, aren't that great. But still, from a commercial from a commercial perspective, I wouldn't want to have an issue where a, a truck got into an accident and my business is going to suffer due to that. Exactly. Or my personal self. I mean, there I, I got advice from one individual who said, hey, it doesn't really matter. You can insure it in your personal name and I'll save you a hundred bucks a month. And I said, no way. There's no chance I'm doing that. And thankfully, I, I made the right decision there. So kind of moving along, Neil, uh, I know that you deal a lot with contract negotiation, as do I as a broker. And I want to hear from your perspective uh, what you find goes into contact, the contract negotiation process. And is that process always revolving around price? Give us some insight there. Okay. Well, first of all, it's almost never revolving around price because price is kind of easy to come to. Nobody's going to offer um, $2 million on a property asking $10 million and they're going to come to a negotiation. It's not going to happen. So if you're not in the ballpark or you can't basically validate why you're making an offer that's below the asking price, then it won't be accepted. So price to me is not something that, that takes a lot of time or, or, or people should spend their time negotiating. Now, especially I'm an attorney, so I usually don't take much um, involvement with regard to negotiating price. I'm much more concerned with things about what are the, what's the time frame of the closing, what kind of representations and warranties are being made, what's going to survive closing in terms of those representations and warranties, what's our due diligence period, is there enough time from the time we sign the contract to the time that we go, our money goes hard after due diligence to actually get things done, is there enough time from the time we sign the contract to close in time before lining up financing, et cetera. To me, those are much more negoti negotiating points that I'm involved in. I think price, for the most part, it's not going to budge that far off the initial asking price unless the initial asking price is out of whack or something yeah. comes along during due diligence that shows that that asking price should not be accepted. Something is there that's going to cost a lot more money than the seller even knew about that the asking price should be dropped. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are very good points. You mentioned reps and warranties, and I want to ask you a question on that because I had a deal actually in your neck of the woods uh, in the Miami MSA, sold a tire store down there. And the buyer actually was very, very uh, intent. And I've never seen this before regarding the representation and warranties, which for anyone who's watching this, who doesn't know what that is, th those are, are, are aspects in the contract that the seller is, is saying, I represent and I give a warranty that X, Y, and Z is correct. Now in this contract, Neil, I'm curious about your opinion, how often you see this, the seller and the, se the buyer and the buyer's attorney were very, very persistent. And they actually required that a certain amount of money, in this case, I believe it was $50,000, be not set aside in escrow, but be available for a period of six months post-closing should this, the new buyer find out that any of the representations or warranties were incorrect. Have you ever seen that before? Was it not an environmental issue? Or was there something specific? It was, well, tire stores, you know, obviously there was a phase one and a phase two because there were monitoring wells on the property. So with tire stores, their environmental issues are more common. Right. I'm sorry. That's there if it was an environment. 
if there was an environmental issue, I can see people doing that. But in terms of other representations warranties, it you know they'd have to really have a good point of why money would have to be held or made available for a period of time. And listen, money being uh, made available and held for a certain period of time or in escrow for six months, it's the same thing. You have to have the money ready. So whether it's being held in escrow or not, the thing is, yeah. unless it's something that's and that's something environmental or something that's substantial, it's kind of rare to see something like that. Yeah, and I thought so too. I had never seen it. My buyer said they do it in every case. It's usually a hundred grand, but as a broker, I know that a lot of stuff in, in the commercial real estate world is smoke and mirrors. Uh, I'm just was right. curious your perspective. Um, you know, I thought it was interesting because a lot of times, especially when you're dealing with a trust, for example, like in this situation, there were co-trustees. Uh, they, it's very difficult for them to make representations and warranties, uh, and, and especially in this case, the, well, the trustees, one of them was a, a huge bank and they don't make representations and warranties on, on any of their, their, their properties. So we were at an interesting crossroads from a legal perspective. It's fascinating for me to hear that, that you kind of agree with, with my perspective in the deal. In the end, the sellers yeah. did agree. Go ahead. I think from a negotiating standpoint, I mean, I, I just, the buyer, it seems, wants that in all the deals. And to me, it doesn't make much sense unless there's something specific, unless there's something that, that they think is continued, that's going to happen, or, or there's something that both parties know about the property that could arise within six months. Or six months is a very long period of time. Um, or maybe that, I don't, uh, grab some money at the end. Who knows? We'll see, right? But remember, even if... Even if they held an escrow or had it available, they have to prove their entitlement to the money. I mean, it's it's being held, yeah. but something would have must be some kind of contingency that have, would have to come to pass. You know, they they just get yeah. the money because they asked us to go into it. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. That's that's the problem I find with escrows. I recently closed a deal uh, shortly before that where I believe it was four thousand dollars held in escrow uh, because it was a multi-tenant in Michigan, and the reconciliation of the cams and uh, the triple nets, the the, the reimbursements. Um, from the tenant to the seller were not done on the date of closing, right? They were done, I think, monthly or quarterly, I should say. So I, I stayed out of it because I know buyer and seller both wanted a certain amount held in escrow. And lo and behold, 45 days later, the title company is calling me, the seller's calling me saying, look, our escrow agreement says after 45 days, we're going to reconcile. And of course, buyer and seller couldn't reconcile. And obviously, as a broker, I can't get too involved in that. But my perspective is always, if you can clear it up before closing time, clear it up before closing time, because after the transaction is closed, things change and people don't want to deal with them. It's hard to get people back to the table, quote unquote, after closing. 100%. So next question I have for you is regarding very similar to what we're talking about is the due diligence process. So for everybody who's familiar with you know commercial real estate contracts, once a property goes under contract, there's typically two major periods, right? taking the financing contingency out. There's two major periods. You've got a due diligence period and then a closing period. So typical due diligence period in my world and the net lease world is about 30 days. Sometimes it's 45 days, sometimes it's 60 days, depending on if it's single tenant or it's multi-tenant. Then you'll have a closing period, right? So that'll be the amount of time from when the due diligence expires and earnest money or the deposit goes hard, right? It's non-refundable and closing. So, you know, I wanna know a little bit about the due diligence period, how important it is and what the process is like, what key parts uh, you see from your perspective as an attorney. Sure, so most of my deals are multifamily, not uh, like triple net lease. So it's important, I usually, so during due diligence, you have title. So I order title immediately and we do survey immediately, unless there's one that's recent. You'll do it yourself, um, you don't, the broker is not the one that's in, that's ordering it? No, I, I, most of the time I do it, yeah. Really? Most of the time, Jurisdiction, depending on the jurisdiction, it's the, it's the buyer. And though there are certain jurisdictions where the seller might do it. 
Yeah. So I, I usually uh, bring in the title company. Um, so uh, title, I, 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 I start title immediately because if you're a title issue, you're going to need that time. So, and then the survey, uh, environmental if necessary. But then there are things like when you do with multifamily, specifically if you have 200 tenants, <clears throat> you've got to match up the, the rent roll to the leases. The rent roll might say X, but then, you know, you start going through leases like this rent roll is not what it says it is. So you want to make sure that from a, from a title standpoint, from a survey standpoint, from you're going to get your engineers in there, you're going to do your financial due diligence. You want to make sure that before the due diligence period ends and the money goes hard, as they say, where it's not refundable, that you want to make sure that you're ready to close. So listen, there are times I try to also put in the contracts that we do get a right to extend the due diligence for X amount of time. And we even put more money down towards an additional deposit because sometimes you get behind the eight ball and there's a lot of parties involved in due diligence. So you're yeah. using third parties to help you out and you have the buyer and sometimes the seller's not, not helping so much and maybe a broker gets involved, et cetera. So by the time due diligence ends and, and you're going hard, you want to make sure you're ready to buy that property. 100%. On that note, do you like when the broker is involved during due diligence or do you prefer to kind of be on the show? They're helpful, sure. Anybody who's helpful is great. Um, yeah, listen, a lot of times the, the brokers, if they know the, if they know the seller and I'm representing the buyer and, and they're going to get us stuff quicker, then sure, I, I don't have a problem with it. And no offense, I just don't like when brokers take over the deals. But other than that, I think, you know, brokers serve a purpose. Yeah. Did you say other than that, brokers serve no purpose or brokers serve a purpose? Brokers are people too. They serve a purpose. <laughs> there you go. You got that from Stephen Wallace, right? Attorneys are people too. <laughs> Attorneys are human too. That's funny. Um, so anyway, yeah, that, that, those are definitely good points. And I think that it's important uh, for me to, to stay here to anybody who's watching. You know, I'm, I'm a broker, right? So from my perspective, I deal with buyers and sellers all the time, many of whom have attorneys and many of whom who insist on doing it themselves. And I can tell you that the amount of mistakes and the amount of problems that come up when buyers and sellers choose to do the deal themselves, it's not worth it. From a broker perspective, it's a super big headache. Okay. If you're buying commercial real estate and, and assume if you're buying commercial real estate, you're spending a lot of money, a minimum several hundred thousand, but probably millions of dollars. Hire an attorney. I mean, it's, it's like a no brainer. It's, you know, if you're so concerned about, if you're so concerned about saving money, that's not the place to save the money. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you. Very hard on these commercial deals. Not like forget about like preparing or reviewing, negotiating the contract, or helping out in due diligence or, or financing. I mean, I put a lot of time in, so it's just it's just to have that other person around and that second set of eyeballs, and you're paying for it. But it's usually if you have the right person, it's usually worth it. Yeah, and I know you've commented on this. I mean, a mistake on the front end that can be alleviated by hiring an expert will cost you sometimes ten or hundreds of times more to alleviate on the back end when it's time to go ahead and deal with the problem that you created by trying to do it yourself, right? It's the famous guy that goes ahead and tries to repair, you know, his plumbing in his house and then ends up having to replumb the house with a plumber uh, when he could have cost right. him, you know, a couple hundred to hire somebody. The plumber has to come in and fix your mess and it costs 10 times as much. I, was, I had dinner last night with a developer and he was telling me a story where they rushed a contract. It was high-end condos and they rushed a contract at the end and they didn't, they didn't use the attorney for this one and they didn't attach like the, uh, the list of, of improvements they were going to make. And because of that, it cost them an extra 150,000 on a residential condominium. And, you Crazy. know, probably for a couple of hours, they would have saved the money. Exactly. I think that's a really good point. And I'm glad that, that 
the broker and the attorney agree here because sometimes we don't but in this in this case we definitely do so hire your attorney hire a good attorney neil is incredible he's been a wealth of, of information and resources for me and for other people in our network so i definitely has my stamp of approval so definitely uh, I'm, I'm i'm glad that we're on the same page there you know i, I want to also ask you i know what it's like from my perspective to, to run point you know on a, a transaction and i i agree with you when i have great attorneys that are involved we work together and I step out of the way until I'm needed to get a document or push a document or, you know, schedule something, this, that, and the other. From your perspective, how difficult is a commercial real estate transaction? Well, I mean, they're, they're very different kinds, but it's not difficult if everybody's reasonable and has the same goal. If everybody wants to close, which I think most people do, then if we can knock out the terms of the contract, start the due diligence on time, Make sure that you know you finish and you're ready. Have financing lined up if you need it. It's not that difficult. It's it's kind of you know of course there are always wrinkles in deals and and hair on deals as they say, but in terms of complexity, I mean whether you're buying let's say a, a million dollar retail store or you know a ten million dollar multifamily, I mean they're kind of similar in the in the bones in the skeleton. But uh, in terms of complexity, it would depend on the individual deal. I think after you do it for a while, obviously the complexity, you know, arc goes down. That's right. You do it for a while, the complexity goes down. Whether you're new, you've been in it a while, you're experienced, you know everything. Give us a call, talk to us, we'll help you. Neil Greenbaum, excellent individual. I'm Dan Lukowitz. This is season two, episode four, Dan on top. Really a pleasure having you, my man. I appreciate it and uh, look forward to seeing you all soon.